This is a difficult passage. Uh, Luke chapter 16. Uh, we're going to look at the first 15 verses today. That's the plan. And hopefully see if we can eke out some useful applications. Um, the heart of Jesus' message throughout the entire Gospels. If, you're at, if anyone ever says to you, what is in one phrase, what is the message of Jesus? Uh, the message of Jesus is that the kingdom of God has come. That encapsulates many things. But that is the heart of his message. The kingdom of God has come. But there is one topic that comes up again and again in the ministry and in the teaching of Jesus. One thing that he uses as an illustration over and over again. One thing that he challenges people about over and over again. And it is the topic of money. <laughs> money. And considering how much Jesus talked about it, we probably don't talk about it enough. And the reason is because there's sort of two extremes that the church can sometimes fall into. One extreme is, is a despicable distortion of the gospel called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel uh, where people never shut up about money and money is a sign that you've been blessed and if you want to be more blessed give me your money <laughs> that's it and, and and that is that is a horrible distortion of God's word but then in order to make sure that we're not associated with that in any way shape or form we can throw the baby out with the bathwater and swing to the other extreme and never talk about it at all never discuss money um and we'll challenge each other in in maybe in, in conversations and in friendships and in discipleship context we might ask each other difficult questions about all sorts of things but but we sometimes just don't touch that <laughs> We don't touch the money topic. We need to know how to treat money, what our attitude sh should be towards our money, where to invest our money. I'm going to give you some investment tips this morning. Investment tips. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to, you will know. You will know by the end of the message where to invest for the best return. We all have a relationship with money. What is your current relationship with money like? Is it good or is it bad? <laughs> And that is not dictated by how much you have. It's dictated by your attitude to it. Sometimes you could have a very small amount of money, but have a great attitude to money and a great relationship and a healthy mindset. You could also have a huge amount of money and have a very unhealthy relationship with money. Jesus knew a thing or two about money. And he knew as well that where your treasure is, according to Matthew's gospel, 16 or 621, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And money can expose what's going on in the heart, what the priorities are. Luke repeatedly forces us to check our hearts and check our relationship with material things. Jesus twice sends out the disciples and tells them, take nothing with you. Rely on the goodness of God. Rely on the goodness of other people. And take nothing with you. He tells them to feed thousands of people with a packed lunch. Without the resource. And then God shows up and multiplies it. The good Samaritan shows generosity and mercy. The rich fool builds bigger barns to store his goods. But is then told that his life is going to be demanded from him. We have still to get to Zacchaeus. We have still to get to the rich young ruler. Luke also frequently records Jesus teaching about the cost of discipleship. 
in, at the end of Luke 9 and also in Luke 12, the king counting the cost before going to war. It's mentioned again in Luke 14 and in Luke 15, we had three parables about valuable things that got lost and the pursuit of those things. And this parable that we're going to read today is in the same context. This is where your chapter breaks are unfortunate because you read the start of Luke 16 as being completely separate from Luke 15, but it's not. It's in the same conversation, it's in the same context, and it is spoken to the same people. Verse 1, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose steward was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship because you cannot be steward any longer. The steward said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The steward told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commanded the dishonest steward because he had acted shrewdly. Goodness me. <laughs> Luke somewhere is laughing <laughs> at, at me and anyone else who is trying to deal with this parable right now. What on earth is going on? Is this an endorsement from Jesus to rip off our employers? Is he telling us to fiddle the spreadsheets to get the money and the figures to work in our favour? Of course not, we say. But yet the master commends the dishonest steward. Well done. <laughs> what do we do with this? I've been dreading this for, you know, you've no idea, the, the sleepless nights I lie there thinking of Luke and what, what is coming up, what has to be dealt with. And this is one of them. There are two main characters in this parable. There is the rich man uh, who is referred to in the text sometimes as the master. He owns the land. He owns the house, owns the property, owns the livestock. He is the wealthy grand chief of, of the place. And then there is the steward. And in some of your translations, he will be referred to as the manager. Now, I'm sticking with steward today because in my mind, when I think of the manager, I think of the person at the top. But he's not the person at the top. The person at the top is the guy that owns everything. And the steward looks after his stuff for him. The steward. The manager. Okay? So that, that's your two main characters that you've got going on in the parable. The rich man, sometimes referred to as the master, and his steward. And what a steward does is he looks after somebody else's stuff. Everything was owned by the rich man. The steward owned none of it. But his job was to look after it, to manage it. He was allowed to invest money. He was allowed to spend money. He was allowed to lend money to others. But it wasn't his. 
He was a steward. That's what the word steward means. Anyway, a report gets back to the rich man that the steward has been wasting his possessions. And he's not happy about that. So he tells him, basically, you need to come turn in the books. I want to go through all the stuff that you've done. uh, And I want to, I'm going to fire you. You're you're finished. Hand over your lodger books and uh, I'm going to fire you. And actually here, the master shows the steward some grace because he should have put him in prison. Not just fire him, but actually get him put into jail. And the steward is in trouble. What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. He is skilled in this work of stewardship. But in that local context he was in, once he loses his job and the whole village finds out that he's lost his job, no one's going to employ him to do the same job again for them. So he's in a real quandary here. He can only do this one thing. He can't dig. And some of you are like, digging. Anyone can dig. You haven't tried it. <laughs> okay. Digging is grim. It's grim. You, you will wake up the next day and know you have done something rather, rather hefty if you spend a few hours digging. So he, whatever, for whatever reason, he's not strong enough to dig. And he's ashamed to beg. And his options are extremely limited. You can't just you know, get in a train, ship off to a different town and, uh, and create a new life for himself with people who don't know him the way people do now. No, he's stuck there. And once his name gets, gets, gets out and around the town that he's been dishonest, he's not going to get another job. So he devises a way to, to, to put things in place with people that will be able to help him in the future. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here... People will welcome me into their houses. And the welcome into their houses is not just for a cup of tea, somewhere to go to get out of the rain or a spare room to get a few nights kip. It's about going into their houses to become their steward, their household manager. He's being fired by the rich man and he wants to create a few friends who might employ him to do a similar job for them. So he has to go and win favour with them. And, and the way he does it is, is really quite savvy. He calls in each one of the debtors and he basically massively cuts back the amount that they owe to the master. So one guy owns 900 gallons of olive oil. Just, I'm thinking of Zio in Portadown. I'm sure that's probably a weekly, weekly dose of, of olive oil there. But 900 gallons of olive oil is owed and, and the steward says to him, right, chop it in half. 450 will do. And they get the tip X out on, on, the, on the book and they start changing the figures on, on, the, on the spreadsheet or whatever. And, uh, and, and they write 450 instead of 900. And you're, you're, you're Zio, Mr. Zio, and you've just had your olive oil bill cut in half. And you're like, happy days. Happy days. And then he goes to the second guy and the second guy owes some wheat and he, he takes a chunk off his bill as well, takes it from 1,000 down to 800. And again, the guy's happy. I want you to note the urgency here. He says in verse 6 to the, to the first fellow, Mr. Zio on the olive oil, he says to him, sit down quickly. I have a limited time period. My master is firing me. I have to get the books and turn in the books and give account. And I have a very limited time to do something about this. There's an urgency about this guy's actions. And you may think it's very strange what he did. 
But it's actually really smart. Because there's a bit of disagreement among scholars and commentators about, about the, the figures here. But one of the most likely and the most common suggestions is that he cut off the, the, the amount that they owed. He chopped off two things. He chopped off his own commission. So he had probably he had got some of the master's money or some of the master's produce, lent it to these guys and whacked on a big chunk of commission for himself and a big chunk of interest for the master. And those two figures, then he removes them. He removes his own commission and he removes the interest that his master was charging. It's dishonest, but it's really smart. (laughs) It's really smart. Is Jesus teaching us to be dishonest? No. But it's really, really smart because the, everybody wins here. Everybody wins. Do you ever just come up with something that just ticks lots of different boxes? One thing ticks about four boxes and you're like, oh, yes. Everybody wins. Because the debtors now only have to pay back what they borrowed. They don't have to pay interest and they don't have to pay commission. Now, you just think of your mortgage for a moment. And you think... If I just got to pay my mortgage without any interest, that would be really good. <laughs> That'd be really good. Because over, over a long period of time, there's a heck of a lot of interest on a mortgage. And these guys are like, this is great. We pay back what we borrowed. No interest, no commission. We win. The rich master, he gets all his stuff back. Every single thing that he lent out, he gets it returned to him. And you might think he would be angry that he doesn't get the interest. He shouldn't have been charging the interest. He was forbidden to do so in the Old Testament. He's been a bit crafty as well. He shouldn't have charged any interest. And another thing that's going to happen for the manager is, or not the manager, the master, the rich man who owns all the stuff, everybody in the village is going to think, you're awesome. (laughs) We'll do business with you because you're kind and generous. And his name gets elevated in the village business circles so he wins the guys who were in debt they win the rich man he wins and the steward himself he's lost his commission but he wins as well because he now has won the favor of the other business people in the village and the other wealthy landowners in the area and then he might be able to get a job with them in the future Win, win, win. It's really, really smart. And the master commended the dishonest steward because he had acted shrewdly. Shrewd is a word that is not really used that much in daily Northern Irish lingo. Shrewd. And it's one of those words, I asked Sarah on the way in in the car, what does shrewd mean? And, And it was just that classic Well, I know what it means, but I can't really explain it. I know how to use it, but I don't know how to put it into sort of a definition. The Cambridge Dictionary says to be shrewd is to be able to judge people and situations well and make good decisions. And other words that could be used instead of shrewd could be sharp, smart, cunning, or prudent. The... Master commended the dishonest steward not because he'd been dishonest, not because he'd taken tipex to the book or erased the history of the Google Sheet or whatever it was, but because he had acted shrewdly. He had been smart. He had been savvy. 
We are not meant to imitate his business practices. But Jesus wants us to be shrewd. That is one of the point, one of the main points of this parable. The parable ends there, halfway through verse 8 of chapter 16. The parable ends, and then Jesus starts to bring out application based on the shrewdness, the shrewd action of this steward. He says at the end of verse 8 and verse 9, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, listen to this, use worldly wealth, that just refers to all money, and I want to stretch it out to resources and possessions and other things, but worldly wealth is what Jesus said, to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Melter, you know, just what on earth is Jesus teaching us? I go out on the street with a 20 pound note and say, will you be my friend? Did we blow it yesterday? Should we have just given everybody a a, a tenor and said, come to church? (laughs) It's just an absolute melter. Jesus is saying that there's a shrewdness in the world that people display. People display foresight. There is a phenomenon in the, in the world of education called the staff room. And in the staff room there is the phenomenon of the pension discussion. Every now and again the pension discussion comes up at break time or lunch time. And it is phenomenal the shrewdness that you will see manifested in that discussion. As people sit down and they talk about fractions, which have 80 as the denominator, and they talk about 40 80ths and 37 80ths and, and all of this, and the, the years and how many years have I got left and my service and am I, is my pension worked out and my final salary or is it worked out on an average and when can I quit and when can I go part-time? And unbelievable shrewdness, getting it all figured out. The people of the world are very shrewd about the future and about their resources. And every one of us is probably reasonably shrewd about our our resources. You look at what's in the bank and you look at where you are in life and you look at what what you would anticipate and you think, right, and you make some plans and you try to save or or you do whatever. We exercise shrewdness in a non-religious, non-Christian, secular context and the world does that. And Jesus says, the world are better at their at shrewdness than my people are. And my people aren't very shrewd. Not very sharp. Not very cunning in the use of resources. God wants us to be more shrewd. In fact, Jesus wants us to be so shrewd. He says in Matthew 10, 16, be as shrewd as serpents. Hang on, Jesus, you want us to be like serpents? They're not bad. I know, I'm pretty sure I've heard a story about a bad serpent somewhere. And you want us to be as shrewd as serpents? Doesn't mean we have the poisonous tongue of a serpent, like Satan. But it means we're cunning, we're smart, we're sharp, we're quick. That's the aspect of a snake or a serpent that Jesus wants us to have. It is that shrewdness. So let's just think for a few moments about how we can apply this, this demand for shrewdness in use of resources to our own lives and to the church. We are stewards of resources that are not ours. 
money, possessions, time, gifts. The parable likens us to a steward who is managing somebody else's money. And that means you can't just do whatever you want with it because it's not yours. And I give you just a life hack for money. The sooner you start treating it as being something that you're given stewardship over rather than something that belongs to you, the sooner you get that attitude shift, the better. The sooner you look at whatever comes up on the app, when you look at the, the banking app, that you look at it and say, that's God's. And he has given me responsibility to steward it. It is not mine. That is a liberating attitude to have towards money and towards possessions. And people might sort of kick against that and say, ah, but I've worked hard. I've worked really hard. Well, who gave you the breath (laughs) that you breathed as as you worked? Who gave you the health to go to work? Who gave you your talents that you used, the opportunity to get that job? Everything is a gift from God. Everything. David, when he, when he receives gifts from the people that are going to be brought to God to build the temple, in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, he says, Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? And listen to his attitude. Everything comes from you, God. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. (laughs) It's all yours, God. And anything that I give back to God, into ministry, into people who are in need, whatever it may be, it's God's and I am stewarding it. And that will just cause you to lighten your grip a wee bit. Just lighten your grip on money. We are stewards of resources that are not ours. Whatever is in that bank account is God's. And some of you might be thinking right now, God's really poor. (laughs) But I can tell you, God owns every penny ever minted, ever made. In the Psalms, we read that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And when he talks, it's the people who are bringing sacrifices to him. And he's he's sick of it. And he said, "I, I own all the cattle. All of them. You don't impress me with that. He owns everything. Do we really believe that? Every single resource is his. And he can cause, the way I look at it is he can cause, at any moment he can cause finances and resources to move away, move towards us or to move away from us. Whatever he wants. Do we trust that God is in control of everything? Everything. And do we look at everything that we have stewardship over as being a resource that is not ours? So what do we, what do, we do with it? What do we do with these resources then? How do we obey you know, what Jesus says in, in that really difficult verse? We'll get it on the screen here in a minute. Verse, verse 9. Look at, the, look at what the steward did in verse 4 of chapter 16. I know what I'll do so that, people, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me. People. He doesn't say, I know what I'm going to do. I know there's a, there's a real high return on, on the bank of Moses, you know, at the other end of town. And I'll put a load of money in there and hopefully get a return on it. He says, I, I'm going to do something that will affect people. All right. And that people will welcome 
me. Welcome me. And Jesus in verse 9 says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends. Not to get more wealth. Not, it's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with investing. I can just make that really clear. Nothing wrong with, with, with investing. Just for those of you that invest, please. If you've got savings, choose the account with the highest interest rate. <laughs> you know, invest wisely. Um, I'm, not, I'm not, please don't misunderstand. But what this guy does is he, he invests in a way that affects people. And Jesus says that we should use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, and it will all go, it will all go. You know, the other day, I, I, it was phone money collection day in the Spence house where I go around, you still owe me and you still owe me. I, I go around the children's uh, rooms and I'm like, it's phone money. To, you have to pay your monthly mo- for your iPhone. Yeah. And uh, and as I went into Sarah's room and I, and I took Sarah's money and her wee face was all screwed up and sad and, and, I, and I got the money and I sort of, I held the note like that in between my fingers. It won't do it with this because it's card. And I said, look, here's what money does. And I did that. So it flapped up and down. It's like a wee bird just flying out of the room. <laughs> oh, wait, just a life lesson. There you go. Sorry to be discouraging, but that's, that's what my, It all goes. Eventually, it all goes. It all goes. I was listening to a Tracy Chapman song. That's a blast from the past. And the, and the, the start of the course says, money's only paper. It's only ink. Mad how, how, how we get so obsessed with it. Note there the word for welcome, just as a way aside here, just because it ties it all in with Luke 15. What was the problem in Luke 15 that prompted the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons and the prodigal father, the lavish, generous father? They accused Jesus of welcoming the wrong people. It was just a wee... A wee pointer in Luke 16 to let you know we're still talking about the same stuff here. We're still addressing the Pharisees and their complaint about Jesus welcoming sinners and eating with them. Do you recognize this logo? Because this, this, this is just how God's been speaking to me this last couple of days about this. He's dropped this silly sort of phrase, into, well not silly, but, but just the source of it's a bit weird. Uh, he's dropped this into my mind and it's got stuck and I want to get it stuck in, in you as well. Anybody recognize that, where that's from? You might see it in your workplace. It is, it is up in my workplace. Uh, as you walk into the building, it's up on a sign in the foyer. And lots of workplaces would go after this as a sort of like an accreditation or a approval, particularly large employers. No, nobody, nobody. Well, it's called investors in people. And God is just seared that phrase into me as I've chewed on this parable. And it's taken longer. The prep this week has taken longer than usual because it's a hard parable. There's been a lot of reading, a lot of listening, a lot of trying to to get my head around it. But this last couple of days, this phrase has just got seared into me. What does Jesus mean when he says in Luke 16, in verse 9, use worldly wealth to gain friends? For yourselves. So that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Friends, eternal. And I think he's calling us to be investors in people. 
If you've never heard of that in the employment world, it's, it's basically you get an accreditation that your business or your company or your school or your hospital or wherever you work, look after their staff and value their staff. And there's a big push on well-being and all sorts of things like that. Okay, So, so that, that's, that's where it's from. But, but I hear God calling us, calling me, to be investors in people. You see, the steward, when he had, he, well, there's an urgency there's an accounting coming when the books are going to be handed in. He has a tiny window of opportunity to do something about it, about the predicament he's in. And he goes and he works on relationships. He doesn't think, what can I sell to, to get this money that I need to give to the master? He goes and he works on relationships that are going to help him in the future. Now, I really hope I can... This is one of these moments where I've got something in my head that's clear to me, but can I convey it? Hopefully. It's a story of my life in school. You know, there's things and you just understand them really well, but how do you, how do you communicate them? But, but friends for eternity. This guy is, is trying to, to influence people so that in the future he will have a welcome. And Jesus tells us to gain friends so we'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He's talking about relationships, talking about people, long term, eternal. I think the sign of a life well lived is nothing to do with how your financial investments have turned out. I don't know about you, but you can very easily lapse into looking at some other people and thinking, that person's really successful. And what is the metric? It's usually the size of their house, their car, the fact that they've you know, retired at 45. And you know, that, that's always the metric. We have this financial metric for comparing ourselves to people and saying, goodness, that person's doing really well. Real success. Compared to me, failure. But I think the sign of a life well lived has nothing to do with financial in- investments and how they have turned out. How successful your business was or whether it fell flat on its backside, doesn't actually matter in eternity. It's about investing in people. Listen to me. It's about making kingdom friends who we will be with in eternal dwellings. It's about doing things that change people's lives and brings them into the eternal household of God. So when I talk about friends, I'm not talking about your mate that you meet to grab a coffee or go to the cinema with or go for a walk or do, you know, I'm not talking about just normal friendship. I'm talking about bringing people into the friendship of Jesus. Investing in their lives in a way that brings them into the the family of God, into relationship with us via faith and via the family of God. And it doesn't matter, you know, that, that might be people we never actually meet. You might invest in a way that blesses somebody in, in a place where you'll never, you'll never actually meet that person. You maybe just invest into a charity. You maybe invest into links. And then you create a, a, a scenario in which someone can receive counseling and they get blessed and maybe eventually end up becoming part of the household of faith, the family of God, globally, not here, but globally. And you've invested in their lives and you've brought them into eternal friendship. You've brought them into relationship through the Spirit. Do you get what I mean? I'm not talking about having an elder person to, to go and do stuff with. I'm talking about bringing people into the family of God. 
the friendship circle of God and using resources in order to do that. Jesus here does, does not talk about, he does not talk about heaven and eternal dwellings in terms of mansions of glory and gold paved streets and whatever else we, we have from biblical imagery about heaven and some of it maybe not from biblical imagery. He describes, he, he talks about friends and relationships being eternal and, and, and being something to invest in for eternity. We are stewards of resources that are not ours and we are called to be investors in people. Get that into your head, investors in people. We will never be accredited by the global thing that is called investors in people. <laughs> but I want God's accreditation. I want the Spirit's accreditation that this church invests in people. Jesus, I, I think maybe Luke is giving us an indication here of what Jesus said in, in Matthew's Gospel 6.20. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, how do I do that? How do I do that? Does that mean I, you know, what, what do I do with my money or whatever? And I think Luke has just given us a wee light on that. Do you, know, you want to know how to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Invest in people. And invest your resources, your time, your money, your energy in, in people in a way that will bring them close and maybe right into the family and the friendship of Jesus. And those will be eternal things. And therefore those will be treasures in heaven. That's how to invest in people. How do we do this? How do we use worldly wealth to make friends? Um, we be generous. If we want to be investors in people, we, we need to be generous. Um, Jesus says there in, in, in verse 9, he talks about using, using money, using our, our wealth, using worldly wealth. I, I, th I thought about you know, stretching that, which I hope is okay, because some of us value time much more highly than money. I know I do. <laughs> time is a much more precious resource. And I, and I wonder, yesterday, to me, felt like a good example of spending some resources to make some friends. Somebody cynical might look and say, ah, oh, you're just putting on a show to manipulate people into coming to church. God sees the heart, so I don't care what anyone thinks. <laughs> and God sees the heart of every single one of us in the room. Those of you who couldn't make it yesterday, but through your giving made yesterday possible, and those of you who were able to be there yesterday, we, used, we spent a few hundred quid. We used resources that we have. We put in our time. We put in our, our talents and our gifts to make friends, to build relationships that could become eternal, that could bring people right into the kingdom of God. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? And what I think Jesus is teaching us here, use your resource to invest in people because that's eternal. Make friends. Make friends. Money doesn't last. It's November, which means I've already had my first mince pie. In fact, I've had them a second as well. Made them ourselves. Um, and therefore, it's also time to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> the annual, you know, it will appear probably in about six sermons between now and, and the end of the year. 
But in It's a Wonderful Life, we have, we have our, our buddy George Bailey. The most likable thing ever to go on a screen in all of cinematic history is George Bailey. And he runs a business that never makes much profit. He's a useless businessman. I mean, useless. Uh, he's not very shrewd when it comes to financial investments. And at one point, he puts $2 bills into a basket and he refers to them as Mama Dollar and Papa Dollar and encourages them to breed and make more little dollar bills. It doesn't work. And a horrible wealthy man in town called Mr. Potter tells George that he's a failure because his investments haven't worked out. He's broke and he's, his just business acumen is, is non-existent. He is not shrewd in business. He is a failure, according to Mr. Potter. But then the most delightful little angel called Clarence hangs out with him changes his view on things, um, and then gives him a gift. At the end of the film, Clarence gives George a book. And inside the book is written, Remember, dear George, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. No man is a failure who has friends. And as the film closes, all of the people who George has invested in throughout his life and helped and given money to and built houses for and done all sorts of things. They all gather around and they all help him out of the fix that he's in. And, and they're not all his, his close besties that he goes to the cinema with or grabs a coffee with or goes for a walk in the park. They're people that he's invested in. He's made friends for eternity. He's used his resources and he is told, you're not a failure Regardless of your business failures, you're not a failure because you invested in people. And look at all the people you invested in. If you're a steward, what you have is not really yours. And God calls you to be radically generous with it. In fact, if we're not generous, Malachi 3 tells us that we rob God. We're not just a wee bit stingy, a wee bit tight, but we actually rob God if we do not give Jesus goes on, and I'm, and I'm nearly done. He goes on to say, after, in verses 10 to 12, he basically says the same thing three ways. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with riches, true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus basically says, do, are, are we showing faithfulness in our stewardship of the small things? Because otherwise we will not be entrusted with great things. And if we can't handle a little bit of money, which is of fleeting value, how can we be entrusted with souls that are of immeasurable value? Paul, influenced by his time hanging out with Luke and learning about Jesus, writes in 1 Corinthians 4.2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Not successful, but faithful with what they have been given stewardship over. And Jesus finishes, or nearly finishes the, the, the passage by saying, no one can serve two masters. He doesn't say it's just as hard to serve two masters. He says you can't do it. It's impossible. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Are our decisions, our financial decisions, do, do they reveal who we're serving? Do we serve God or we serve money? I, I think one, a danger that we can face in this hyper-productive world is that every time there's an opportunity to make more money, we grab it. Without thinking about the extra stress it might bring, the tiredness, the pressure, the time, we just think, more money, I'll do it. And, and, and there's, there's opportunities. And I, I struggle with this as well because you know what? A chemistry elevator tutor around Belfast will get paid £60 an hour. An hour. That's big. <laughs> okay. In my economy, that's... And there's temptation. There's always temptation. There's always temptation and there's, there's opportunities to move from one level of management, from middle management to senior management. And you could get more money. But there's stress and there's time and there's pressure and there's all those other things. Take on a second job. Do overtime. Think very, very carefully about how we make those decisions. Are we making them as servants of God, seeking God, listening to God, and on occasions there is no doubt that it is right (laughs) to take a promotion. But listen to God. Don't just listen to the mammon. That's an Aramaic word for money. Don't just listen to the money talking. Saying, come and do this. And burn yourself out a bit more. Burn yourself out a bit more. One of the best ways to to cultivate a good relationship with money is to give it away. And I would challenge you, if you haven't done it lately, do something extravagantly generous. And that'll look different for everyone. But, I, but one, of the, one of the best ways to, to just nail money and put it in its place is to give some of it away. And when you give it away, say to it, whenever you're about to hit click hit or click send on the bank transfer or, or whatever you're given to, or when you're putting the money in the envelope and you're about to hand it over or, or, or put it through the door or do whatever, just whisper to it and say, you are not my master. You're not my master. I don't serve you. I will not let you have a hold on my heart. Away you go. <laughs> Away you go. It's a fantastic discipline of just keeping money where it should be. The bottom line for these Pharisees listening to Jesus is that they loved money. Luke is wonderfully blunt. <laughs> they loved money and they sneered at Jesus after these chapters where he has gone hard after them and he has mentioned finances and resources a lot they are just sneering at him but he says in in verse 15 about how God sees the heart so in conclusion we are called to be shrewd that's a word that about 300 years ago meant evil <laughs> in its original context. So cunning and so sharp, it was a negative word, but it has been uh, redeemed as a positive word. We're called to be shrewd. We're called to be faithful stewards of resources that are not ours. It applies to the church, but it applies to all of us as individuals that we steward what God has given us responsibility for. And we are called to be investors in people. 
perfectly exemplified, as always, by Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. All his riches, all his wealth, all his glory, all all his majesty, everything was taken and invested. He became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. The ultimate investor in people, King Jesus. And he invested in us while we were his enemies, according to Romans 5. We were his enemies. And he turned us into friends for eternity. And he challenges us, I believe, as a church. I believe he's speaking all my fear of this parable, but I believe he's really speaking to us in this one. Challenging us to be investors in people. To have that almost as a motto for a, a season, maybe for the, for forever, but certainly for this season as a church to think, how can we take what we have the finances, the people, the talents, the time, and how can we become investors in people in this community? Let's pray. Let's worship. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for how, Holy Spirit, you have, I believe, helped us to understand this and to derive application and challenge from it. I pray, Father, if there's anything that I've taken here that is making somebody feel unnecessarily uh, uncomfortable, uh, please, God, if it's, if it's not of you, <laughs> get rid of it. Uh, let it be forgotten, Lord. But I just pray for all of us for a profound sense of, first of all, gratitude for what you've given to us to manage, to look after, to steward. Thank you, Lord. Help us to have that healthy attitude that it's not ours. Help us to invest for eternity by investing in people. And help us as a church, especially after yesterday, help us as a church to know what is the next step and the next step and the next step so that we take these resources and make eternal friendships, eternal relationships that would see people brought into your family and your kingdom. Amen.